David Berman disbanded the Silver Jews because they would never be big enough or powerful enough to undo the evils done by his father, the conservative lobbyist Richard Berman. The Silver Jews frontman faded into hiding, abandoning the small platform that he had gained while fronting one of the first great indie rock bands in the 1990s, and instead found himself lost in literature in his Nashville home. The most prolific songwriter of a generation went on a decade-long pause, only popping up in the public eye a handful of times to garner Bigfoot truther-like reactions from the Drag City record label Diehards. The mystery of Berman only grew with his absence. By the 2010s, their 1998 release American Water was a triumph of first-wave indie, and their 2005 release Tanglewood Numbers was a hallmark in the alt-country pantheon. Despite the rumors of a possible reunion, the idea of Berman sitting down, creating, and then releasing new music felt like a far-off possibility. After a decade-long absence, Berman hurled new music into the public eye with a new single titled All My Happiness Is Gone in May of 2019, then a full-length release under the name Purple Mountains two months later. With the release, Berman topped Album of the Year list, gained a larger following, and was set to embark on a U.S. tour that fall. Unfortunately, on August 7, 2019, David Berman took his own life. A year after his death, Purple Mountains remains a harrowing tale of defeat, heartbreak, and it chronicles a journey that David Berman described as treatment-resistant depression. And for that, Purple Mountains is an art school album. All my happiness is gone All my happiness is gone It's all gone somewhere today wore a Rage Against the Machine Evil Empire shirt in our Spanish freshman year of high school class. And ever since then, I feel like we've been uh, destined to have this moment with one another. It has been a slow build of a friendly acquaintance. Uh, I am so glad and excited to have Justin Blanner on the show finally. Justin, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm fine. You know, it's... uh. It's 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 just a, a daily grind at this point to keep going, to wake up, and to be productive. Uh, and today, my goal was to do this podcast with you, and we are now doing it, so I can check that off. I am so glad to have you on the podcast, because like I just said, we have known each other for a very long time now, and I'm assuming, given that we agreed to do this album kind of mutually, that we have sort of the same thoughts on this record, which surprises me because whenever I envisioned doing this podcast with you, which believe me, I have thought about it, I assumed we would be on sort of two separate ends of the spectrum because despite the fact that I think we appreciate some of the same things in music, I think we have very similar listening listening habits in terms of how much we listen to music. Do you think we are on two separate planes of what we typically enjoy? Because I certainly feel that way sometimes. Yeah, I think the conversation that we're about to have is probably a pretty typical conversation for you and me, and we seldom agree on whatever we're talking about. So, yeah, it makes me is... feel great. It makes me feel great. Yeah. We are like locked in with the handshake of like, yes, we both agree that this is good music because it rarely ever happens. So I need to discover, I guess, what your interests are, who your bands are growing up. Who were some of the musicians that you really latched onto at first? Um, well, I'd say, okay, so whenever anybody asks me about, like, you know, my favorite bands, I just say, like, the, the big four for me are in no particular order. Or uh, actually, here's a particular order. This is the, the order in which they were, that's uh, chronological for my life, is Grateful Dead, The Beatles, Frank Zappa, and Steely Dan. So that's like me. I do directly associate Steely Dan with you because you're the only person I know that really, really loves them. And I feel like you're very vocal about that. So what is it about Steely Dan in particular? A band I know almost nothing about. All I know about Steely Dan is the fact that you like them. That's pretty much it. So what drew you to them? Um, well, they're like... A, a musician's band if you know what I mean like they're like really famous for their studio perfectionism and uh, 
using like really like world-class musicians and uh, being really influenced by jazz and uh, you know music that I am also influenced by and um, like some of the some of the people that they've worked with are you know Michael McDonald and uh, just like really great guys that make their own music that is inspiring and they are to me the best thing about them is that there's nobody like them and if they are like them they suck really bad (laughs) now you also mentioned the grateful dead we've had a discussion in the past because i the grateful dead are a jam band i lump in every jam band together as a collective and put a label of bad on it not a genre i'm interested in not a genre i enjoy you have argued that there are great differences between what the Grateful Dead does and what the band Fish does. And if you can elaborate on that, that would be great because to me, they're all the same debacle. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand that. And if you're coming from the outside, it's easy to think that a jam band is a jam band. <laughs> um, and my days of actively shitting on Fish are kind of behind me. Like, I'm not into them, but it makes people happy, so that's fine. But I mean, uh, First of all, there are no jam bands without Grateful Dead. So every every other jam band is just a it's diminishing returns in a way, like trying to get to what the Grateful Dead got to. Um, but it's just like because it's so much more than the music, you know. There's like a whole community built around it, and there are like lots of bands like that, but none to the caliber of a Grateful Dead. You know, the strength of the bond of the music that you know the link between the band and the audience and the link between all the people in the audience and it's you know everywhere you go any room you're in there's a chance that like somebody is on that grateful dead wavelength and that's a powerful thing so you really enjoy the culture of the grateful dead because that that surprises me just a little bit but i also understand what you're saying because even like a shitty straight edge band. I'm like, oh, well, I, I like, I get it. Like they might be horrible. They might not know how to play their instruments, but like the message I get it. You, uh, I, I mean, obviously the Grateful Dead have a strong sense of musicianship, but you're saying that you gravitate towards the culture of it a lot also. Yeah. I mean, like I, I know what good musicianship is cause I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I know that they have their moments where uh, they, they even are not sure why they're doing what they're doing, you know, but um, yeah, I think that they, what they're after is not so much a sound as a feeling, and, and they are better than any band in history at accessing the undefinable thing of that, you know, that part of music that you can't really explain. I like that. Not going for a sound, but going for a feeling. That is that is well put. That is something that I am going to have to frame, I think, future albums around, because that's a really good point. Now, Justin, you also play in a band. This is correct, yes? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, kind of your thing. Kind of uh, the first thing I knew about you was like, oh, this kid plays guitar and seems super cool. So tell uh, the, the wide listener base a little bit about uh, your current musical endeavors. Okay, well, I write music and play with a band, Paul Stretch, and I guess I started writing under that name when I was like 16 and started a band with like some of my friends. Um, And then, you know, I moved to Chicago and I reformed the band with uh, some different people. And so it's, it's evolved, but... I mean, it's just the thing that the umbrella that I put things on, it doesn't really mean anything yet. Maybe it will someday, but it's sort of like me trying to uh, put all of my influences that I was talking about before, those like four bands, That's it's me trying to put myself into all of those bands in a way. Uh, I really enjoy your work. Uh, I have not seen your band in a long time now that I think about it. I guess since we both moved to Chicago because we went to the same high school and that it just so happened that we ended up going to the same college. I don't think I've seen your band since we moved to Chicago, but I do remember being 16 and 17 and going to the Ben and Ari's Arcade in Fishers, Indiana and seeing you perform a lot. That was very that was very fun for me. Those were very fun experiences, and I quickly uh, enjoyed how seriously you took your work 
and how your songwriting was crafted. So we're here today talking about Purple Mountains, the David Berman album that came out last July. Uh, the day this comes out will be the unfortunate day before the one-year passing of David Berman himself in August of 2019. David Berman, a literal poet, someone that produ- uh, published rather a, a, a poetry book called Actual Air, is that sort of the way you approach songwriting? I mean, Berman was very literal. Again, he was writing uh, poetry and simply setting it to music. How does your songwriting style, I guess, differ, or is it very similar to that of one David Berman? Um, uh, it's definitely different, uh, just because I'm... I guess I would consider myself a musician first, so it's hard for me to do lyrics and then attach music to them. So, you know, I think a lot of what I have done in the past is I will write the music and then the lyrics come second. But as I've uh, matured and gotten into, you know, some more lyrically uh, dense music, I've like tried to make that a little bit more of a focus and try to have the music and the lyrics on a similar uh, level. So that's like, it's a challenge for me, but I, I try to do more of that. Like I'm forcing myself to work in a way that is not uh, intuitive. What is your relationship like with uh, David Berman, whether it be in Purple Mountains or the Silver Jews? And I ask this uh, with a story in mind of the first week that we had moved to Chicago. I still didn't really know anybody. I got the sense that you didn't really know anybody. So we met up and we spent an entire afternoon going to various record stores in Chicago and also figuring out the train and bus systems along the way. I don't know if you remember this day at all. I look back on it as like the first really fun day I had in Chicago. I think very fondly of it because I think very fondly of you. But I do remember a specific instance at which we were walking into the Reckless Records at Wicker Park. And I said as we were going in, I would love to find some silver juice here. And then I asked you, Justin, you a big Silver Jews guy? And you kind of looked at me and you were like, do I look like I'm a Silver Jews guy? Uh And I was not insulted, but a little bit confused because, yes, you seem like you would be really into them. But I got the impression from that conversation that maybe they weren't a band you were a fan of. Um, Well, first, I'd just like to point out that I'm not the same guy that I was that day. Um, I also I remember that day not necessarily as fondly because I mean maybe you don't remember this but that was the day that Walter Becker from Steely Dan died. So that's right. I, I was forgot kind of, about that. I was just buying up all the Steely Dan records at all those stores that we went to, and um, the other reason that I don't necessarily remember it as fondly as you is because I left my backpack on the very first bus that we got on. I do remember you texting me about that after the fact of like, oh shit, I have no backpack anymore and us both being helpless about it. (laughs) Yeah. But like I I mean, you are, have you softened a little bit? You keep on saying, well, I'm not the same person I was. It seems like Justin Blanner is maybe going soft on us because you, for the longest time, had this hard, uh, I would say, coated in sarcasm shell. It seems like maybe you're shedding that skin a little bit. I'm working on it, Case. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, sometimes I think like, I'll, I'll see somebody else that is reflecting my personality and be like, man, you suck. I hate you. So I'm just I, trying. Trust me, I completely understand. I get so bummed out when uh, <laughs> on the off chance that someone's like, you know, you really remind me of so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, really? Shit. All right. I got to. I got to change it up a little bit. So uh, it's it's good to see, you know, anybody working on themselves. I think that's very admirable. I, I'm glad that you feel that way. That means a lot to me. So Silver Jews, not a band you are a real big fan of, I take it? Um, more so, like I've been able to get, I'm a really big Pavement fan. Yes. So I love all that Stephen Malcolm's stuff. So, you know, eventually once I had just like, you know, I've listened to every Pavement album a billion times. I've listened to all the Jick stuff, like everything he's ever done. So it's just like, well, all that's left is his Silver Jews stuff. So... I got into that like American water, whatever, like, you know, some of that and that. So now I can appreciate them more. But at that time, I was, a, I just wasn't 
hip. I will say, I am still waiting on that moment of like, oh yes, I understand this, with Pavement specifically. A band that I've been told I should love, a band that I really want to like, a band that does nothing for me. And I plant my flags firmly in the David Berman Silver Juice camp, and I kind of look on with not disdain, but with discomfort towards the Stephen Malkmus and Pavement side of things. I don't know, because the bands are so, I guess, closely associated with one another, given that there are members in both. But, Justin, why do I not like Pavement? Um, this is, okay, this could be a horrible assessment, but sort of the way that I've compared those two bands is like, Stephen Malkmus is sort of a more, his poetry if you will is is more lofty and like it's less direct and like you know everything that david berman writes is like pretty like i know what he's exactly what he's saying he's like speaking very very clearly but a lot of uh what you know a lot of pavement lyrics are kind of like does this mean anything and I mean, I got really into them just because I love, like, the music, and I couldn't necessarily, I didn't care that much about what he was saying, you know? Um, I, I do now, like, I think he's a really great writer and writes unlike anybody else that I know of. And But I think maybe you don't like him because he's not he's not speaking to you, he's speaking at you or around you. I think that's really fair because I, I want to respect and appreciate all that Stephen Malkmus does, but I have just never been grabbed by it. Whereas with the Silver Jews in particular, I remember hearing them for the first time. I heard a cover of their song Candy Jail, which was on their last record in 2008, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. I heard a cover of that by the band AJJ, another band that we have had lengthy discussions on. I haven't changed that much. <laughs> and I don't expect you to. If you go really hard into AJJ at this point, I'm concerned. So I think that's okay that they, we have different opinions on that. But they, they covered this on Candy Jail. And I was like, well, what in the hell is this? Like, this is so different. And then I heard the original version of it and was so blown away. But at this point, this is my sophomore year of high school. I distinctly remember listening to uh, a lot of Silver Jews in my Core 40 Algebra 2 class. I guess this was my junior year because I would go from what was called Core 40 Algebra 2, which was, and I'm in it, I was in the class, so I could say this, it was dumb kid math. And then I would walk across the hall and go to an AP seminar class with a bunch of future doctors and lawyers. So I felt like I was really getting the full spectrum of our high school, and I somehow felt stupid in both classes. But I remember listening to a lot of Silver Jews at a point where uh, because they were on Drag City, the record label, they were not streaming at this point. I was just getting into record collecting and having some sort of physical music in my life. So I I didn't have any Jews records in my life at that point. So I was listening to them on like 240p or 360p YouTube rips and was just kind of blown away at the mystique of this band, and then as I began collecting more music, uh, I would buy any Silver Jews record that I found because it was it was something new, and it was something that I couldn't just listen to uh, willy-nilly on my phone. It was something that I kind of had to hunt for, and then, you know, they hit streaming, and by that point, I had had, you know, all if, you know, almost all, if not all of their albums on vinyl, and they were a band that I, I just fell in love with as soon as I heard them because I understood... David Berman in a way that I've never really understood Stephen Machmas. Like, I just understood this guy, his whole deal. I love the fact that his last album, Look Out Mountain, Look at Look Out Sea, and Tanglewood Numbers, the one before that, it's a lot of him and his wife, Cassie Berman, kind of trading off vocals, and I just really like that dynamic on those records. And that was a, a lot of my life was, uh, I guess my latter years of high school into really my first year of college was just like, Oh my God, like I, I love the Silver Jews and even more so than AJJ or the Front Bottoms or Modern Baseball, whatever other shitty bands I like, I could look at those Silver Jews and go like, no, this is really good. Like this writing 
is on another level and they were always just uh, kind of my band. I don't really feel like I vocalized my love for them that much because, you know, it was hard to find first of all, and no one really cares anyways, but I had long come to accept this idea that the David Berman music that is out there, the six Silver Jews records, that is what we have. And although there were teases of a Silver Jews reunion, although there were murmurs long before the Purple Mountains album was announced that maybe he's working on some stuff, maybe he's not, I thought we would never get another David Berman album. So when this album was announced, I was elated. And leading up to the day that it was released, it was the number one thing on my mind. I couldn't believe we were getting new David Berman music. Justin, do you remember where you were or what you were doing the first time you heard the Purple Mountains album? No. <laughs> no, that's, Sorry. That, no, no. I, I will say I, I do simply because it came out July 12th, 2019. I woke up that morning. I uh, was in Indiana. I drove to Broad Ripple to go to Luna Music, uh, my favorite record store in Indiana. I was there. It opens at 10. I was pretty much there at 10.15. Kind of whipped through those doors, grabbed the Purple Mountains album, uh, grabbed Bell and Sebastian's If You're Feeling Sinister that day, and a a Tiger's Jaw record as well. It was a good day for me. It's a good day for me. Uh, Pack up, get in the car. I'm going home. I had purposely not listened to the Purple Mountains album. I wanted the first time I listened to it to be on vinyl in my room. I had this whole scene laid out. I'm driving home. I'm listening to the Bill Simmons podcast. He's interviewing Kumail Nanjiani. I'm in a very good mood. Things are going really well. And then out of nowhere, I get rear-ended by a 16-year-old on my way home. Very stressful. Uh... My car was fine. His car was totaled. He hit me and received way more damage than my car did, which, you know, I took as a as a small victory. And then by the time I got home, ate lunch, I then had to go to work where I was posting up as the assistant manager at the Castleton Mall Lids. And so I couldn't listen to the Purple Mountains album. The only thing I'd want to do for months, the only thing I wanted to do was sit down and listen to this album. I could not do it until late that night after I'd gotten into a car crash, after I had performed a shift at Lids. Uh, I am the only Lids employee that has ever left a shift and gone directly to listen to David Berman music. I don't anticipate any other employee doing that ever their entire lives. But I finally sat down and listened to this album, and I was just blown away at what I was hearing. So big picture, Justin, before we go track by track, what are your thoughts on Purple Mountains a year after after it's been released? Well, first of all, let's just give a, a take a brief moment to appreciate Luna because it is the best record store in the world. I have spent countless hours there. I have spent a sickening amount of money there, and I do not regret any of it. Um, also, I think that you maybe would not have liked it as much if you just got to listen to it when you wanted to listen to it. All that that pent-up misery is what you needed to appreciate it. Um, but I mean, for me, I think, uh, I guess this was, this was the first time that I like really understood where he was coming from. Uh, like I had started to get into some silver, silver juice stuff by then, but I wasn't like, I wouldn't call myself a fan by that point or anything. Um, but yeah, this is where. I understood what he's all about. Kind of like, there's some people who are poets and then they put music underneath their poetry. And then there's some people who are musicians who like have words in their music. I think he perfectly like walks the line to where neither side is taking away from the other. Like they're both supporting each other perfectly. And I don't think there's a lot of people who are, that good at that so that's that's what this record made me realize i would wholeheartedly agree there i think although the berman factor of this album the fact that it is him in control is you know obviously very similar to the silver jews albums that had preceded this 
there is a fuller sound, a richer sound, I think a more diverse sound in parts of this record than anything that the, that the Silver Juice were ever able to accomplish. So just the abbreviated timeline of how we got here, uh, the Silver Juice put out Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea in 2008. It is their last album as in early 2009, David Berman writes a forum post on the Drag City message boards uh, entitled My Father, My Attack Dog and explains that his father, Richard Berman, was essentially an evil conservative lobbyist who it took it upon himself to cause as much harm to worthy causes as possible. And so David says, you know, in this note, you know, he ended the band because they were too small of a force to ever come close to undoing a millionth of all the harm that his father has caused to you and everyone, you know, in a way I am the son of a demon come to make good the damage. There needs to be something more. I'll see what that might be. And then we have a full decade of, like I said earlier, you know, rumors of, you know, are the Jews going to get back together? You know, is David Berman working on new music? We don't really know. Uh, And then, as we'll talk about when we get to the song, but in May, it has sprung upon us that there is a new single out there, All My Happiness Is Gone. And then we get a promotional build to this album, which was so foreign. Uh, It's hard for me to fully contextualize it because I was listening to the Silver Jews after they had broken up, but just from being such a big fan of the band, you know, this is a band that was founded in 1994 and they did not tour until 2005. Uh, they were constantly turning down interviews and various other PR things. They were essentially a hidden band uh, that were labeled incorrectly as pavement side project at times, but the the Purple Mountains thing coming into play was just so different because, you know, The Ringer was covering this and various music publications that would have ignored the Silver Jews were now covering David Berman and David Berman seemed to be in a place where he was very comfortable talking about the last 10 years of his life and what was to come. And we get sort of a synopsis of his decade playing chicken in oblivion if you will on the opening track uh that's just the way i feel which kicks off the album it's a very i would call it a very honky tonk sound i think it's closest uh sonically to the silver juice album bright flight which i do think is their best album people will fight me and say you know maybe it's american water maybe it's tanglewood numbers no my friends it is bright flight it is a perfect 10 out of 10 record uh but i was just immediately given comfort and given solace in this opening track the first time I heard it. Justin, where do you stand on the opener? I think it's good. I like it. (laughs) I will also say I put a lot of emotional weight into this album more so than others, because as you know, I mean, what I like, I really, really like, and I tend to publicize those sort of things. This whole project is, or this whole podcast is one big vanity project. It's disgusting when I think about it, but specifically, like, there's a ton of horrors going on in the world currently. Like, this summer, like, we are battling a pandemic and a bunch of other things that have been brewing for centuries at this point. I will say I'm in a much, much better mental state this summer than I was last summer. Last summer in July, I was at a very low point in my life, and having Purple Mountains come out when it did, it was like, okay, I can attach myself onto this. It's something that, that I needed to hear. I think the content of this record is exactly what I was looking for in those times of despair. And if the roles were reversed, if somebody else was hosting this podcast and they asked me to come on, this is probably the album that I'm going to pick. It just so happens that Justin had sent me a message uh, about the record uh, somewhat recently. And I was like, well, shit, come on the podcast and let's talk about it. So the opener is strong. And then I think track two, All My Happiness Is Gone. Not my favorite song on the album, but if there is any sort of pop sensibility on this record. If there's something that is widely accessible, I think it is track two, All My Happiness Is Gone. Yeah, you might be right about that. I mean, I think, okay, so first song, I, I what's that? Uh, I spent a decade playing Chicken with Oblivion. Yeah. That, okay, I know that this record is going to be good now, once <laughs> I heard that. And yeah, and then that, All My Happiness Is Gone, I... I liked how, 
I mean, if you're, I don't know what order these songs were written in, but consuming it the way that he, I'm guessing, wanted it to be consumed, that the beginning of the record is very like, it sounds like he's in a good mental spot, but, uh, you know, if you were to like read it, you would be incredibly concerned. Um, so, I, you know, I've been, you know, I'll make the comparison of like um, Black Star, the Bowie album. Because, I mean, they came out in sort of similar circumstances. Um, so, like, looking back at it after the fact is kind of, like, haunting a little bit. There's a lot of that on this album. And I do not look at this record. I understand this record is immensely sad and at times depressing, given a few of the songs on this album. But it's not one of those where I just pour over and I think about how sad it was and and I don't personify this album as some sort of last cry for help or this or that because you know a month after it's released I guess we could talk about it now but you know right before their tour is about to start uh, David Berman unfortunately uh, committed suicide and it w- it was to this to this point in my life it is the most affected I have been by a personality's death um, and I, I am still coming to grips with how I feel on it because it was so shocking. And again, I think this Purple Mountains record, although it is horrifically sad, I, I will point to a line in the uh, KEXP review that Martin Douglas wrote where he says, Purple Mountains is the all too sobering reminder that sometimes pain doesn't have a remedy, but releasing the sadness which ails us will always be an exercise in catharsis, no matter how temporary it seems. And I think this is David Berman exercising a lot of these demons. I think it is deeply human to feel all of these things he felt, and he is just packaging it in a way that is a beautiful art form. And it is, you know, selfishly, I'm just devastated that we never got the tour. He never got the chance to play these songs in front of people because I think it would have been so incredibly well received when you have a song like all my happiness is gone which you know i mentioned the album as a whole i went to luna music in indiana i uh, grabbed that bad boy off the shelf as soon as i could i was in chicago on may 10th 2019 when this single was released i saw a pitchfork tweet as i was sitting at the university center dining hall a place that i miss greatly uh And I saw a tweet from Pitchfork that was like new David Bourbon music and I panicked and I shook and I opened up the link and it says, you know, there is a vinyl only single uh, available at independent record stores right now. And I cleaned my plate. I walked out of that building and I'm not going to say I ran, but I certainly fast walked to the Reckless Records uh, in the South Loop and found the single there but that was the last weekend of my college semester and I had already packed up my record player I was going home that day so there was like a 48 hour period where I couldn't listen to the vinyl single and it wasn't up digitally anywhere that was part of the you know the whole I guess branding of it was you know support your record store outside of record store day like this is just meant to be a vinyl single right now let's keep it that way so it was another one of those like i'm building anticipation to listen to the song and then i heard it and was blown away by it then and listening to this album all week in preparation for this podcast although admittedly it's not like i listen to it more than i typically do i just have it on a lot always it is it is a perfect song i just i think the world of this track you, that's justified. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's uh, one of those that I just find to be completely delightful. Now, you talked a little bit about the order in which these songs are written. I do know that the track that follows Darkness and Cold, this was the last album, or I guess the last song, rather, written for this album. Darkness and cold, darkness and cold rolled in through the holes in the stories I told. This was also a single. This has a music video uh, with David Berman and Cassie Berman. What do you think about this song? I think sonically, this one sticks out a little bit on the album. I I think this might be my favorite song on the album. I I really like the the I think the melody is really strong, and I think the words are really strong and um, sort of 
can be interpreted however you want because of the you know juxtaposition of the way that it's like the sonic quality and then the con the lyrical content you kind of get to decide where he was coming from or or just how you want it to be and that's rare i think and like they're not he's not like famous for his musician musicianship or anything like that but i think it, this is like a really well written song from a musician's point of view justin are you familiar with the band the avalanches uh, yeah, I am a little bit. Yeah, so the Avalanches released a song last year called Running Red Lights that features Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. Uh, and in that song, they pay tribute to David Berman and specifically this song where they have the lines, the light of my life is going out tonight in a pink champagne Corvette. Rivers Cuomo, can you imagine him sitting down and listening to this album? Yeah, really easily. I never thought about it before, but definitely. <laughs> no, this seems like something right up his alley. And I think as we go along in the album, it is it is incorrect and almost impolite of me to say that this album gives off Rivers Cuomo vibes because it does not. And I want to make that abundantly clear right now. But it is very... Uh, obvious to me that rivers is like no this shit sounds this shit sounds good uh this was i'm sure this this i think this album came out at the time where rivers was doing a thing where he was intentionally cussing a lot which was something new to him uh so he was probably going this album's fucking good this album's really (laughs) fucking good because there was a brief time where that was his new gimmick uh there are no swear words in the following track snow is falling in manhattan it is one of the two six minute songs on this album there's one of the first half one of the second half Justin, this song is just a drawn-out narrative. It is something that, whereas a song like Darkness and Cold, if that popped up on a Silver Juice album, it wouldn't be that shocking. This is so just desolate and soft at times that I think it is a complete departure from the Silver Juice sound. Where do we stand here on it? It seems really, like, important to the record. Like, it's a like a, plays a crucial role in the overall uh like the arc of the album um it is like very different from a, a lot of the other stuff that he's ever done but um and it's kind of like a it sounds like a bummer you know um yes i think more maybe more so than it well other than the other six minute song on this album this is the one where it's like oh man things are not going great for david berman but that's okay the song does end on the line you're the old friend i just took in which is for me exactly what this album was again it was a companion of sorts just to personify it a little bit it was something that I really emotionally valued and legitimately helped me process a lot of things that I was going through at the time. Do you have albums like that where they directly transport you whenever you hear them to maybe a not great time in your story arc? Yes. I would so, imagine so. Which are some of those albums? Um, well, one of my favorite bands is Pile, and I got really into Pile when probably like sophomore year of high school, I was just like, that was all that I listened to. I mean, not all that I listened to, but I listened to it a lot. So if I hear that, it's taken me a long, like for four years or so, when I graduated high, I just like could not listen to Pile because it would be like, wow, I'm 15 and my life is horrible. Is, Pyle, like, is Pyle an Athens, Georgia band? Um, they're from Boston. Okay, maybe not who I'm... I'm thinking of Pylon. That is it. Band names are so dumb. Uh, so dumb. Yeah, I will I will have to dive into that. That, that, sound, that sounds quite intriguing. Well, for me, it has been a lot of this Purple Mountains album. The third and final single on this record was track five. This was Margaritas at the Mall, a single with unfortunately no music video. I do think While All My Happiness is Gone is perhaps the most accessible song on this album... I think if there was going to be an air quotes hit, uh, God forbid alternative radio ever played something really interesting. But if they did, I think Margaritas at the Mall would be the pick to sort of jet stream this album into some sort of mainstream consciousness. This 
I, this might be my one of my least favorite songs. Really? Um, All right, please explain. I don't know. Maybe it's just the imagery. Like, you know, I feel like I have witnessed what he's talking about, you know, and or it could also be the pairing of, you know, I feel like I've mentioned this like a million times at this point, but the the way that he matches the music and, and the lyrics is sort of they're both kind of like separately in a way they kind of like make you cringe not in like a typical like way but just like there's something unsettling about it and that somehow they're unsettling in like polar opposite ways and i i don't know something about it is just it's like now I know that like something is is not right, you know, in in his life. That's very interesting. That is something I I have not considered as I as I continue to analyze the song. I look at it as one of those where I think throughout his entire discography, most of David Berman's work is very personal and very much about him. You know, it, it's songs about the way he is feeling or these single characters where he's able to sort of define their emotional spectrum a little bit. And in this song, he is, you know, repeating how long can the world go on uh, with such a subtle God. And it feels very big thematically compared to what he normally sings about. And with the horns, I think sonically it is just a much bigger sound than anything that I am used to from him. And for that reason, not my favorite song on the album, but one that I have continued to come back to and continued to really, really enjoy. This also may be me being closed minded, but anytime any kind of like uh, salsa, Latin American, any influence of that in pop or like rock music i just feel like is almost in like poor taste like it's it's corny kind of uh i'm not trying to diss on the the mastermind here because he knew what he was doing but it makes me uncomfortable does that also uh preclude you from listening to anything ska related um that's not what keeps me from listening to ska but i (laughs) (laughs) that is exactly the answer i was hoping for that was beautiful uh we do go to the second side of the record at this point and it begins with she's making friends i'm turning stranger which i think sonically is the closest to a silver jew song this sounds like it could have been on 2005's tanglewood numbers would have fit in right in there but it is far more direct than any Silver Jew song. And I think this and the track that follows, I Love Being My Mother's Son, it is very much David Berman saying, here, here is exactly what I'm thinking about this specific topic at this specific time. And he would always dance around it a little bit with those Silver Jews albums. They were far far more metaphorical than this, although maybe not as metaphorical as a lot of the pavement stuff. But here it is it is very direct. And I guess for the first two songs on the second side, both She's Making Friends, I'm Turning Stranger, and I Love Being My Mother's Son, not the strongest songs in the albums, but ones kind of like what you said about Snow is Falling in Manhattan that feel very important to the sound of this record. Yeah, I really like She's Making Friends. Like, I can relate to it. Kind of. Anyone who's ever been the on the wrong side of an unrequited love can see like, oh, wow, things are going really well for them and they don't <laughs> seem to be having any problems. Like, it, it hit me in a where it hurts, I guess. Uh, and, yes, completely. I completely understand and agree. Unfortunately, there is a, a very solid line from the Pitchfork review of this album in which the writer writes, his separation from Cassie after two decades of marriage casts a heavy shadow through nearly every song, a thematic and musical absence that gives this album an unsettling starkness. His voice has never been strong, but there's a new helplessness in his delivery, and I think that is very apt 
on she's making friends i'm turning stranger because although he and cassie you know they're in the uh, music video together for darkness and cold they remained uh, friendly up until the end uh and i i saw cassie uh play some songs at an art gallery in november and you know i obviously she only had you know amazing things to say about david but they had separated at this point so in the truest sense this is a literal breakup album and i think that is very very apparent on she's making friends i'm turning stranger i do like the the song like the music though which... really strong musically on this track i want to be tantamount to cordial tantamount to good i want to be a warm and friendly person but i don't know how to do it she can't make it to her car without making a new friend She's a small town superstar. Everybody holler in her name. Uh, from there, again, I Love Being My Mother's Son. This was the first song written for the album. Uh, David, from the time the Silver Jews disbanded in 2009 through 2016, spent his time, as he puts it, just reading. That was kind of his deal, was he just wanted to be around books, whereas the aforementioned Cassie Berman was going out, getting her degree, uh, doing things socially at Nashville. Uh, he did not play music up until his mother's passing in 2016, and then uh, almost instinctually picked up his guitar and wrote I Love Being My Mother's Son, which is a terribly beautiful song. Maybe the one, if I if I had to gun to my head, skip a song on this album, this is probably the one that gets the skip, but again, I think incredibly important to the overall story being told. Yeah, and I- I mean, I think all people, like creative people, can relate to the idea of using your art to as a as therapy, you know, and that like is really like you can feel that in this that he's like trying to get something off his chest a little bit, and um, I, I mean, I also like being my mother's son. Uh, I do as well. It's nice to have a uh, a pro-mom song to be able to turn to. Very comforting in a way. You talked about with the hindsight of this album and the unfortunate events that occurred about a month afterwards, just how haunting some of this is to listen to. And I think that is encapsulated uh, best or worst, maybe, on Nights That Won't Happen, which is track A, Justin uh, this song is horrifically sad. It was horrifically sad when it came out, and now a year later, it is somehow even worse, in my opinion. Yeah, this like tail end of the record is like you can okay. He's he's kind of made his peace with his his life and the fact that it's over. Like it seems to me like he knew that this record when it was going to come out, and like that was it. Like maybe. It, his departure was a little more premeditated than we would like to believe. That's what that chunk of the record makes me think. Yeah, that that is uh, unfortunately a very sobering and and fair way of of thinking about all of this. It's a six minute song at very slow in tempo. These are things that I typically rally against, but the songwriting. And the lyrics of this track, you know, ghosts are just old houses dreaming people in the night. Have no doubt about it, hun, the dead will do all right. Go contemplate the evidence. I guarantee you'll find the dead know what they're doing when they leave this world behind. And those four lines right there are as deeply personal and chilling as anything I've ever heard before. When we talk about songs about death, uh, typically a genre that I'm all about, this one continues to just stop me in my tracks. I, I, and again, you know, part of it is just hindsight, but yeah, this is, this is terrifying to think about. Uh, perhaps that swan song of reality. And, as, and being someone who has like gone through the process of writing and recording a record, like the idea of him making this and and you know putting it together that that's like heavy you know i feel like maybe i guess i don't know but maybe a lot of people who listen to music they just hear the finished product but you know when you when you've like been through the process you hear the process and and that like is a whole nother layer of like he had to this was probably a really hard record to make for him 
Well, like, he is. I mean, he's someone that consistently scrapped projects, um, abandoned recording sessions. There is a level of what I would call hard-headed perfectionism that followed his entire career work, which is funny given that, uh, especially those early Silver Jews albums, kind of the first two, Starlight Walker and The Natural Bridge, have this very like slacker, first-wave indie rock kind of vibe to them. But again, lyrically, they are they are perfect, and all of those lines mean something the same way that they do on this Purple Mountains album, where I'm hanging on to every single line in every song on this album. But... His backing band here was the band Woods. Uh, his only prerequisite for finding a band to work with was that they had to be a fan of his work so they could possibly adjust to his mood swings or his temperament or the fact that this just might never happen. So the fact that there was an entire process that ended up with songs being recorded and then being released is a testament to how strongly David felt about this work because there are other projects in that 2016 to 2019 period where, again, he stopped playing music for so long once he picks that guitar back up that were worked on that the idea of recording these and releasing them were teased at one point, but they did not meet his standards. Here we get 10 songs that get the David Berman seal of approval. So it's it, it, it uh, this will sound sickening in a way, but it is a privilege that we get to hear this because there's so much other David Berman work that is tucked away on hard drives that will likely never be released yeah i was just thinking about the other day like posthumous releases like i hope that people can just leave his stuff alone you know like so often somebody dies and they're like all right well we can release all their stuff that they didn't want out there now he doesn't want it out like just, yes. just i hope people can live with that I, I completely agree. I'm glad someone else echoes that sentiment because I, I have thought that as well. Uh, we do hit the last two songs on the album. The first one, or I guess the, the ninth song on the album, the second to last one, is Storyline Fever, which continues a trend that Berman has always had. I, I Off the top of my head, I believe every Silver Jews album had 10 songs. Maybe the first two had 12. Can't remember off the top of my head, but he has this habit of 10 song albums where the ninth song is a little bit more jaunty, a little bit more fun, something a little different. It's Party Barge on Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, Friday Night Fever on Bright Flight, Honk If You're Lonely on American Water. Storyline Fever is a direct departure from the sound of the rest of this record, and I think one that is, if we're going to throw air quotes on it, maybe a little happier than the rest of the songs on here. I could agree with that. And especially like where it is, you know, I mean, in the beginning things, it starts on a high note, you know, and it's sort of like a pretty continuous decline through the whole thing. Um, But yeah, he sort of like, maybe gives you some false hope here. I, yes, that's that's exactly what it is because you know this is almost a song that if you're if you're battling you know a riptide, rip current, whatever you know you're you're throwing your head above water and gasping for air with this song, and then I think uh, once again the sobering reality of what life could be and is for so many people is on the final track. Maybe I'm the only one for me. It's my favorite song on the album. I think it's an American songwriting classic. I think this song needs to be preserved and celebrated because I look at it as sort of a celebration of just personal happiness and just being okay with who you are and being comfortable with yourself before it can be comfortable with others. I think the song is terribly funny. Uh, The line, if no one's fond of fucking me, maybe no one's fucking fond of me is exactly what I'm looking for. I mean, that is that is what I want my music to be. Justin, where do we stand on the final track? 
I love this song. At everything that it represents, I think it sounds great. I think it's written great, and I, you know, it's it's very like okay, you know, it's a period on his life. He seems like it's not. I'm done because I'm miserable. It's I'm done because I I finished what I what I am here to do, and that is sort of uh, comforting, I think. There's an Exclaim interview where David talks about all of the songs on the album, sort of what they meant to him, uh, his process behind recording them. I had always looked at Maybe I'm the Only One for Me as a song of self-acceptance, as some form of self-love. I thought it was like a triumphant, like, I am going to be okay. Um, This is who I am. But I was shocked to learn that it is maybe not that, as during David's time away from the air quotes public spotlight, I would have guessed he didn't own a computer or a phone. As it turns out, David Berman was actually super into Reddit at this time period and was really intrigued by uh, the way conservatives attacked Barack Obama and the way they were gaining traction on online forums and just the way that the right has been able to mobilize and militarize in this unfortunately very effective way. Uh, And so David writes about this song. I was also speaking to the reality of the fate of young involuntary celibates. This is definitely from an incels perspective. And I also realized that it's uh, the ultimate neoliberal love song as we sit in a place of peak individualism. It's not the kind of message I'm proud to spread. I don't intend to be I don't intend for this to be a love song to the self. It's more of an I'm stuck with myself song, which made me think once again, yeah, Rivers Cuomo probably really likes this album. <laughs> yeah, you might be right. Are you happy with how frequently the concept of incels comes up on this podcast? Because I feel like it's at least more than once, right? Uh, well, we the first episode is Weezer's Pinkerton. And that whole that whole episode is based around the concept of incels, uh, partially because it was me and Jake Clegginsmith recording it, and that is just naturally uh, the topic that seems to occur when we are in the same room. I feel like it's probably come up on a few other episodes. I don't doubt that. I don't remember the top of my head, but I'm sure it has. And yeah, I've made my peace with it. I, you know... Hey, we're all we're all in some sort of battle here. You know, if incels are constantly coming up on the Art School Albums podcast, is it what I want the podcast to be? Not really, but am I accepting that it is what the podcast has become? Yes, unfortunately, uh, maybe that is just the reality we're living in, but that is the end of the Purple Mountains record. Uh, it is 10 songs in 44 minutes. It closes on maybe I'm the only one for me, which even if David Berman didn't intend for it to be uh, a song of self-love and, self- and self-acceptance, I choose to think of it that way. This album received an 8.5 out of 10 in Best New Music on Pitchfork, an A- from Consequences of Sound, and a 3.5 out of 5 from Rolling Stone. Justin, if you had to give this album a rating out of 10, what number are we throwing on this bad boy? Um, I think given the, the things that are relevant to the album outside of the album itself, you know, the, the circumstances in which it was made, in which it was released, and in which it was consumed by me personally, um, I think it's a, a pretty high, like, 8.59. Um, but if I was trying to be objective, I'm not going to. That's no, stupid. no, that's no, no. You gave you gave me the answer that I think is is appropriate. That is fair. Uh, objective ratings are dumb. Don't worry <laughs> about it. I'm at a 9.5 with this record. It was my album of the year in 2019. It was one of my five best albums of the decade for the 2010s. Uh, it is the second greatest David Berman recording I've ever heard. I put Silver Juice Bright Flight as a 10 out of 10. Uh, so if you like this record, I would recommend Bright Flight and all of the Silver Juice albums for that matter. It is, it, like I've said throughout this entire show, it is one that as soon as I heard it, I knew I needed it in my life. It is one that I continue to grow with and one that over the past year I have not gotten sick of listening to at all. And it is in heavy, heavy rotation. So Justin, I ask you, who needs to hear this album and why? Um, I think that fans of Kurt Vonnegut need to hear this album because the nature of so many, like just the, the 
format of so many of his books are here's 250 pages of me just like putting weight onto your shoulders and then here's one tiny chapter at the end where i lift it all off and it feels so good that's exactly what this record does that is the best answer i have gotten to that question what a home run to end this show i wholeheartedly agree justin it is time for plugs where can the people find you where can the people listen to your music what organization slash activist group slash whatever do you want people to know about uh this is your opportunity to let the people know um well you can find my music wherever you like to listen to music i mean on the internet at least um my band is called paul stretch um that's two words um my instagram is paul stretch underscore and i would like to just encourage people to um look at the National Resource Defense Fund, any environmental organization, because um, we need the planet really bad. We do need the planet so Justin can make music, so other people can make music, so I can talk about it on this podcast. Uh, This week, specifically, I'd like to point people towards the organization Music Cares, as when Drag City, the record label that put out all of David Berman's work, his albums, his poetry, his merchandise, uh, they put out some Purple Mountains posters last year. And the proceeds from that went directly to Music Cares. So I think it is only fitting uh, that we once again try to point people in their direction. You can find out more information about Music Cares at Grammy.com backslash M-U-S-I-C-A-R-E-S. Justin, I would like to thank you for coming on the Art School Albums podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore K-Slow, C-A-S-E-L-O-W-E. You can find the podcast itself on Instagram at Art School Albums. And this has been David Berman's Purple Mountains. Purple Mountains.